0: I have kept the faith. What a great text we have for our last corporate study time of the year. I'm looking at 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 through 8. Paul speaks and says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. It's interesting to me that he says already. He's still alive. But he says the process. I'm already being poured out as a drink offering And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, not only to me he's an apostle he says but not, not not just to me but also to all who have loved his appearing what a text you you feel as though you're reading words that are uh, very carefully thought through studied prepared i mean paul Frames his words around three things. A struggle in which he's engaged. I've kept, I fought a good fight. An assignment to be completed. Finish the race. And a body of truth to be protected. Kept the faith. I think we're blessed to have the words of a man who, who actually saw the end of his life coming. Who could see it as it drew near, and he could think about it. He, he could take the time to describe the effect that this knowledge of his soon departure, he can take the time to consider it, reflect on it, and then express the effect that it should have on all of us, our mortality. I mean, a lot of Christians die without having the time to think about it and say about it. Accidents. Unconsciousness, other factors can sweep people away in almost total silence. A lot of people never get the chance to utter those kind of considered departing words. There's a special reason for studying these words on the last uh, Lord's Day study time of 2020 for our church family. I mean, we've come upon a very significant time on the calendar. It's, it's not because we're preparing to enter 2021, but because whenever a year passes by, any year, you have, you have the end of a, a miniature lifetime. I know the timing is somewhat arbitrary, but, but a year end, it just seems to mark a sizable chunk of my existence that's forever out of my reach. I mean, you only get so many years. Long ago, Seneca wrote these words on the passing of time. He said this, We are mistaken when we look forward when considering the fact of our death. A major portion of death is already passed." Whatever years lie behind us are already in death's hands. Wow. We all know that death is the taking away of our future days on earth. I mean, that's what death means. But are not our future days being taken away from us one by one, every moment we live here on this earth, in this physical existence? I mean, there are two days that cannot be lived in our present earthly existence. The day after you die and yesterday. I say all of this, just in case you're wondering, not to depress anybody, but because of biblical commandment. Psalm 90, verse 12. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. So teach us means this isn't something we know naturally. It's, It's the kind of thing we usually don't think about as much as we should. Teach us, God, teach us. It's something that has to be learned, apparently, if life is to be lived wisely, that you may gain a heart of wisdom. If there's one thing I know for sure after years of following Jesus, it's at least this. That no commandment from God's word is ever given with the intention of taking away my joy or my fruitfulness in living. Every, every word from the lips of Jesus, every biblical truth is for my good. So, so it follows it must be good for me. It must be good for me to think about the shortness of my life, the passing of years here on earth. Now, let me tell you what I think the good of such a numbering of our days. Let me tell you what the good is. I, I think the passing of a year, last Sunday of the year, I think it's designed by God to be a sort of uh, preparatory dress rehearsal for my departure from this world. I mean, leaving a year is like leaving a lifetime in miniature. And it really is a very positive thing because it means I can reap the lessons of my departure from this world while I still have time to implement them in this coming year's living. If that's complicated, think about Think about the way a dress rehearsal works for a wedding. So many things to plan, so many things to think about. So many things can go wrong. People stay up late at night. They look through catalogs. They pick patterns. They order flowers. They sort colors. They line up dates. They send invitations. And then the rehearsal itself. They practice saying the vows. They don't want to stumble up. On the wedding day, they practice walking down the aisle. They practice standing in just the right place, saying just the right thing at just the right time. They want to make sure that at the actual wedding, they've done it enough times that they're ready for it. There. That's what should happen at least when we come upon a year that's passed My point is simply this. What that rehearsal is to the wedding, the passing of another year is to the Christian's departure from this world. It's the opportunity to make sure we're on track. It's an opportunity to make sure we've been living for the right things. It's an opportunity to make sure we're not missing out on something very important. So I say it again, this is not a negative exercise, nor is it an unnecessary exercise. The Bible says it's the, it's the core to wisdom and meaningful life in the days that lie ahead. So let's consider Paul's meditations. One, the fundamental issue of a life well lived is the perseverance and growth in faith in God. Get it? It's, it's in the last part of that seventh verse. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finished. Kept. So as this year, this little condensed lifetime, as it passes from our hands, how are we going to assess it? We're supposed to take stock. How will we measure? What criteria can we apply to this past year so that it will be a a useful rehearsal for the days that lie ahead? What's the most meaningful measuring stick? Well, there's several we could use. I can measure it by financial profit. Did you get a raise? Look at the books. Check the bank balance. See the investments. In fact, if you're in... Really, really bad shape, you probably don't even have to check. Just wait. They'll be sure to contact you in 30 days or so and let you know. But financial profit isn't a very good measuring stick because I know right now that it's not going to be the measuring stick I use when I'm on my deathbed. You won't even think about your investments then. Actually, the same holds true for almost any other earthly measuring stick. Promotions, advancement, travel, sphere of influence. None of those things will be meaningful standards for my life when I die. Now, in our text, Paul gives us a carefully considered evaluation of life as he actually faces his departure from this world. So, so he's saying, he's saying, here's something to value and cling to because you will actually treasure it more when the time of your departure comes. In other words, this is the ultimate measuring stick of a good life because it prepares you well for this life and prepares you well for the life to come. You can't beat this for a measuring stick. So, here's the fundamental issue for a life well lived. Have you kept the faith? And, and, for that matter, just what is keeping the faith? How can I know if I'm keeping it well? What are the marks of a life committed to keeping the faith? So that's where we're going. I see four marks to keeping the faith, all under this first point. So A, keeping the faith means constantly keeping your attention fixed on Jesus Christ. I want to look just for a minute at Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight, the sin which clings so closely, that him prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. And let us run with endurance the race. Paul talks about it in our text. A race. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And here it is, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Keeping the faith. Christian faith is faith in Jesus Christ. There's there's no latent magical power just in the art of picturing or visualizing. I mean, the media might delight in describing all of us just as people of faith. But the Bible puts very little stock on that kind of vague, open-ended title. The issue isn't the power of your faith. The issue is the power of the object of your faith. We look to Jesus Christ, God the Son. It's the difference between keeping the faith and just mere moral reform, however profitable that might be in a limited way. Human willpower is never enough just to achieve its own kind of spiritual growth. And Jesus went to great lengths to remind us of that, thinking we needed the reminder. John 15, 4 and 5, boy, abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much. There it is again. Fruit. Twice now. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So there's this difference between just activity and the fruit that comes from abiding in Jesus. So, so, so keeping the faith, it's beyond mere knowledge. It's beyond just activity, moral activity, and it's also beyond just the initial act of believing. Conversion, we call it. We know this because Jesus is speaking to his disciples in John 15. So the issue here isn't whether or not they know who he is. The issue is, do they keep their lives abiding in him, keeping the faith? Are they anchored, abiding, receiving life on an ongoing basis from Jesus day by day? This is the issue for me. This is the issue for all of us as we examine our lives at this year end. What are the specific points where my life is sustained by Jesus? He's talking to me in those verses. He's telling me I don't need him less today, 50 years after my conversion, than I needed him when I was saved, so that the passing of time doesn't make abiding in Jesus, keeping the faith. It doesn't make it automatic. And I tend to forget that. Do you look to Jesus every day before you look to anything else for that day? Do you bow before him, acknowledging his supremacy, his lordship, before you have the chance to give your hearts in a distracted way to other things? That's how you keep the faith. So keeping the faith is looking to Jesus. B, keeping the faith means resisting unbelief, doubt, and discouragement with nothing but the sword of God's good promise. I think it's important probably to remind ourselves that you can't live in this world without experiencing seasons of doubt. You really, really can't. That's true whether you're a Christian or whether you're an atheist. I always remember reading C.S. Lewis when he said, when I was an atheist, there were times when God seemed dreadfully real. The fight of faith is always going to be a a fight against unbelief. Unbelief is, it's just the attack dog of Satan. The enemy of your soul is relentless in his attack on your confidence in God, your trust in God. It's your faith he's after. He cares nothing else about you. So here's a spiritual law. Before people disobey God, they stop trusting God. So so the stream of unbelief, it always flows unaltered from its source with, with the enemy and the temptation of Adam and Eve in the garden. The devil always deceives before he destroys People, people just gradually come to believe that the path God has chosen for them is somewhat, somehow unreasonable at some point. So their confidence in God is diminished just slightly below their confidence in their own judgment. So they stop trusting first, then they stop following, keeping the faith. Little by little, almost unperceived, it's so easy for the balance of trust to shift. Thoughts rise up in the mind. God is made to appear indifferent or unjust or both. First I doubt, then I disobey. Keep keep the faith. That's why the Bible says the victory that overcomes the world is your faith. That's why the Bible says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. And that's why Paul says if you want to live well, if you want to be ready for your time of departure from this life, your entrance with joy into eternity, then above all else, keep the faith. Never, 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 never lose your trust and your confidence in God. So we keep the faith. That's what we're looking at now, four signs of it. By looking to Jesus, we keep the faith by constantly resisting doubt, discouragement. Three, C, we keep the faith by not getting entangled in this present world. Paul makes it so clear, doesn't he, in that fourth verse. He uses that word. No soldier gets, there it is, entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted. He's got these military uh, metaphors, these pictures here that he's painting. Now, there's nothing in the immediate context of the first half of 2 Timothy that would, that would indicate that Paul had anything perverted in his mind when he mentioned just becoming entangled In this world, he doesn't mean stuff, you know, demonic. He he means the stuff we all have to do every day. Not necessarily wicked, just the everyday activities of life in this world. You you get tangled up in them. You know what that's like. They, 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 They get you caught up in them, you never get them done. You run out of time, you work harder. And all of those routines, those activities, here's the thing about them. The biggest battle of ordinary days is the way they tend to make us forget God. That's what Paul is dealing with here. What we do every day, the ordinary things tend to anchor our hearts and minds. They draw us in. And that's why, by the way, Paul uses that exact picture of a soldier. I've never actually lived through any kind of war experience. I've been alive, watched on the news while wars were fought somewhere else. But I've never had my daily routine affected by the conditions of war. My grandparents did. I've talked to other people. I've talked to people who know what it's like to not be able to turn the lights on after dark because of blackout conditions. I've talked with people who can, who can remember you couldn't buy certain materials, certain foods, certain fabrics. I've talked to people who can remember seeing luxury liners on the ocean painted gray and turned into troop carriers. The point is, nothing continues as normal when you're involved in warfare. Normal routines are all suspended. Resources are channeled into the winning of the war. Everyone is focused on one thing. So, so Paul now, in our text, he says a big part of keeping the faith, the third thing we're looking at, is bound up with this conscious Reminder that we are living our ordinary days following Jesus under the conditions of wartime. No soldier gets entangled. So if the Lord gives me 70 or 80 years on this earth, I'm to live every one of them with an emergency outlook. It's hard. I'm not to treat one year of life as though this present situation was normal or ordinary or permanent or ultimately satisfying. Each year I have, it requires this steadfast rethink, this, this download, this determination, concentration of a foot soldier on the lines of battle. So that's the third thing. The fourth mark of keeping the faith, D, Keeping the faith means living with my eyes constantly on the reality of the second coming of Jesus. I get that in verses 7 and 8. I have fought a good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. That day and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul writes these words from a prison cell. He's facing, sooner or later, he's facing his own execution. But it's, it's really beautiful. While his body is in prison, his, his heart is somewhere else. He lived his life on the horizon of the dawn of the second coming. Jesus coming. I want to say it as simply as I can. Here we are, the last Sunday of 2020. You you will, in terms of big mistakes, we all have our little blunders, but in terms of big mistakes, you will rarely go very wrong if you live every day thinking about the coming of your Lord Jesus Christ. Trials will seem temporary. Burdens will seem lighter. Questions about justice and evil will receive explanation. Setbacks will all be righted. Tears will be wiped away. In other words, in the battle for your faith, your confidence in God, in the battle for that, nothing will counter the draining downward pull of this day and the work of the enemy like the blessed certain hope of Jesus Christ. I've been reading Jonathan Edwards' famous list of resolutions, and I like this one. Quote, Resolved live each hour today in such a way that I would do nothing different if I knew it was the last hour before I face my blessed Lord. There, that's a resolution you can put down on your fridge. Point number two, we're almost done. Keeping the faith requires warfare and persistence. I'm looking at that seventh verse again. I have fought a good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Fought a good fight. Finished the race. Kept the faith. It's those verbs. Fighting a fight. Running a race. Keeping a faith. I don't think they really are meant to be thought of exclusively in separate terms, like three different exercises. I think they're different descriptions of the same heart, the same attitude. In other words, keeping the faith involves running a race and fighting a fight. Fighting and running are how one keeps the faith. So the idea, I guess, is this. Fighting the fight means there's going to be specific opposition. That's what makes it a fight. It must, in some sense, at least be a hard thing to do, otherwise it wouldn't be called a fight. So fighting the fight means there's opposition. Running the race means this won't be won quickly. So so keeping the faith is it's not a sprint. It's like running a marathon. You know what that's like if you've ever done it? Pounding heart, screaming lungs, aching legs, parched throat, blistered feet. We need to consider this. Everyday walk with Jesus. I, I think our natural tendency is to think that any element of struggle in our walk with Jesus is maybe somehow an unnatural thing. That like God has deserted us because we're in a pandemic. It's not so. I mean, Paul simply does not even recognize a Christianity that isn't like fighting a fight and running a race. He knows nothing of a coasting kind of pleasant Christianity. The faith is infinitely satisfying. It is a tremendous joy producer. Jesus said it's like buried treasure or a pearl of great price. It is precious. It is not easy. So let me just do all I can to encourage Cedarview Community Church and all others who are watching. I want to encourage you today And for the year to come, this fight is winnable. The race is finishable. All of heaven is there to help you keep the faith. But remember, the race isn't over just because you start. Keep keep your eyes on the finish line. Keep looking to Jesus. Here's the last text in conclusion. Here's how I would wrap this message up. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be that sluggish, but imitators of those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. Henceforth, as a crown of righteousness. Not just for me but for all who love his appearing. Keep the faith, church. God bless you. Help us, Lord Jesus, with texts that are almost too big for us. We want to lean into these truths. You're worthy of every ounce of our trust. You never, ever told a lie. Every promise is sure. Your presence never leaves us. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever. Keep us leaning into that commitment to you and keeping the faith. We love you, Jesus, with all our hearts. And we will until we see you face to face. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Let's keep going, church. Keep going. We'll see you next week. God bless you. Love one another.